Well, I hope you guys are having a great summer so far. It's nice that it's finally gotten a little warm here in Chicago, and it's not freezing at night. My family, or I should say Rhonda and I, have taken some big chunks of time to get away in the month of June with our big blended family. We have seven adult kids Six of the seven are married. We have seven grandkids, which means when we're all together, there's 24 of us in our immediate family alone. Yeah. Pray for me. It's great. Pray for Rhonda. That's probably better. But thank you. So we have a lot of fun. It's noisy. It's chaotic. We've done some fun thing this summer. Uh, we spent some time water skiing and, and boating. And then we went out west to the Rockies to spend some time hiking in the beautiful Colorado summers. But instead, this was our experience. Two weeks ago today, we went snow skiing. Sunday, June 23rd, at the end of the summer, I'm the handsome guy in the red uh, our son-in-law, Luke, one of our daughters, Christine, and our granddaughter, Eliza. And we skied in a blizzard. It was just crazy. This is two weeks uh, ago today. So that's enough of that. But I want you to see that picture. And also, I just want to say to you, isn't this what we all love about summer, right? The opportunity to get together with families and friends the opportunity to kick back, the opportunity to travel a little, uh, like we have been doing. And that's why actually this series on the life of the, one of the greatest men who has ever lived, one of the most godly men that has ever lived, the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham. That's why this Old Testament series on the life of Abraham is so important because it will refresh us. It will change us. It will make us whole. As we see all that God the Holy Spirit has for us in the life of this remarkable man that lived about 4,000 years ago. So today, as we continue this series, we come to the second chapter in the story of Abraham, and that's Genesis chapter 13. And as we look at this chapter, I want us today to focus on what it teaches us about the human heart, your heart and my heart. Now look at this verse from the book of Proverbs. I want to use this to kind of set up where we're going with the heart. The proverb says, above all else, Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, when the Bible talks about the heart, the Bible isn't talking about a mere physical organ. The Bible is talking about the center of human personality. And that's how it's used here. If you will, it's a command and control center, the nerve center, the engine room of our lives. Our heart drives everything we do. That's why we read above all else. What is more important than anything in life, what will make or break you are the issues of your heart. That's why the author James K.A. Smith wrote a wonderful little book entitled, You Are What You Love. You become what you want. Because he understands arguing biblically that it's the desires of our heart 
that determine our values, determine uh, who we are and how we respond. It determines our hearts, determine who we become. So above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because everything you say, think, and do flows from your heart. And today what I want to do in Genesis chapter 13 is look at the hearts of three men. Lot, the nephew of Abraham, then Abraham, and then none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so would you stand with me as we read beginning in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 1. So Abram, now in Genesis chapter 17, Abram's name will be forever changed to Abraham. Abram in the Hebrew means exalted father, but Abraham is a more significant expression of the promises of God because Abraham means father of the multitudes. So Abram went up from Egypt, he had just been in Egypt, to the Negev, southern Israel with his wife Sarah and everything he had and Lot his nephew went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai where his, his tent had been earlier. This is a reference to the preceding chapter Genesis chapter 12 and verse 8. And where he had first built an altar, there Abraham called on the name of the Lord and again. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites, Perizzites, and certainly mosquito bites, were also alive living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, toward Zor, was well watered like the garden of the Lord and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and to the west. All the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So let's begin today 
with Lot's heart. Lot, like his uncle, according to our chapter, chapter 13, was by now wealthy. Not in terms of a bank account, but in terms of livestock and animals. But unfortunately, Lot's people and Abraham's people were not getting along because they had run out of space. Now, from a business perspective, what this means is their growth potential had maxed out. And business for them was now threatened. So Abraham did something unusual, actually something that shattered ancient Near Eastern protocol, where the senior member of the family always went first, or in this case, chose first. So what does Abraham do? He gives Lot, young Lot, his nephew, uh, the choice, to the first choice. Almost unheard of. The choice to choose which part of the land he wanted to go to. Now all commentators agree in saying that Lot should have refused. Should have deferred to his uncle. You know, you're my elder, Abraham. Uh, I'm going to defer to you. But that Lot doesn't and, go ahead and goes ahead and seizes the moment and grabs the opportunity reveals his heart. It reveals the self-centeredness, the pride, and the greed in his heart. Because what does Lot do? Lot chooses the most fertile plains of the area. Let me show you this map. In chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12, Abraham is in Egypt. He begins to make his way up through the Negev, which is southern Israel, into this place between Bethel and Ai, Ai rather. It's just about a couple miles north of Jerusalem. But what our chapter doesn't tell us, because the first readers, the original readers, would certainly have understood this, is that this area is the hill country of Judah. It's the hill country of Israel, meaning this was 3,000 feet higher than the area of the Dead Sea. So when we read that Lot looked, he was able to look down the distances about 18 to 20 miles to this area south and east of the Dead Sea and see how green it was. Green like the irrigated areas of Egypt along the Nile. Green like the Garden of Eden called the Garden of the Lord in chapter 13. And from this point they could see. And Lot realizes as he looks around this is the one area where he could get richer. And he grabs it. So Lot, number one, trumps his uncle. And in moving to this area, he, he technically moves outside of the promised land, the promises God had made to Abram in chapter 12, or at least to the fringes of the, the promised land. Why? Because... He's pursuing money. So what I want you to understand is this all reveals Lot's heart. Money is more important to Lot than God. 
But there's more here. <clears throat> Look at verse 10. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zor was well watered like the garden of the Lord and like the land of Egypt. I want to focus on this reference to the Garden of Eden. There's a very famous Old Testament commentator by the name of Robert Alter who makes a big deal about the assertion or insertion rather of the Garden of Eden here in this comment because he's saying this is an editorial comment Rather, this is a statement about how Lot in his heart viewed this green, fertile plain. In other words, in his heart, for Lot, it wasn't just green and lush and well-irrigated. For Lot, it was paradise. The place he knew he could become fabulously wealthy, where he could experience wholeness, uh, prosperity, happiness, meaning, and significance. Now let me apply this for just a moment. If you're a student and you say, I've got to get straight A's, I've got to get straight A's, I, I will get straight A's. Or you're a young adult and say, I've got to have a boyfriend, I've got to have a girlfriend. Or if you are single and you want to get married, and you, you say, I've got to have a spouse or I've got to have a, a beautiful spouse. I've got to live in a beautiful home. I've got to have a great career. I've got to have beautiful kids. I've got to experience success in this. And that doesn't matter uh, what your age is. Uh, in order to be significant, then what you're saying about these things is I have to have these things in order to be happy. And you're doing the same thing Lot is doing here. And whatever that thing is for you, whatever those things are for you, that's your Garden of Eden. You see, if you go way back to the Garden of Eden as God created it, we were whole in the Garden of Eden. We were perfect. We knew we were totally loved, totally accepted. We were secure in God's love, and in the presence of God. But Adam and Eve fell in sin, and as a result, that inner security was lost, and it's been replaced by an inner insecurity that dogs the human race. It doesn't matter how much you have, how little you have. It's been replaced with an inner emptiness. A longing that causes us to make bad decisions and to do uh, bad things. The insertion of the Garden of Eden in terms describing what Lot, Lot was thinking means Lot had turned money, possessions, and land into the thing that he believed would complete him. Make him whole, give him peace. But it didn't, and it doesn't. So let me come back to application. When you set your heart on a person, or, 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 or people, or a, a situation, or a circumstance, or your health, or your appearance, or your success, as I, I mentioned, and, and unconsciously are, are, are telling yourself, uh, that's my garden of the Lord. 
you know what you're doing? You're putting a 10-ton truck on a bridge with a capacity of two tons. And that bridge is going to collapse under the weight of your expectations. Because the stuff of creation always, 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 hear me in this, overpromises and underdelivers. And so I wonder this morning, what is your Eden? Is there something that often it's unconscious, and it's good to reflect on this, that you're holding on to, that you're clinging, man, if I have this, then I'm, then I'm okay. And I want to say to you in love, if it's anything other than Jesus Christ and his love and his lordship, it will collapse on you. It can't bear the weight you're putting on it. Now, please, I need to say, do not misunderstand. There is nothing wrong with making money. There is nothing wrong uh, with using your talents and abilities uh, to get ahead. There's nothing wrong with wanting a happy life or, or, or good health. We all do. But when those good things become ultimate things, they become an idol. They become a counterfeit God in your life. And you're in trouble. So let me give you a definition of idolatry. Uh, we move into idolatry when a good thing becomes more important than God. And you can often engage that and tell that by your emotions, by what's going on inside of you, or, or what happens when your goal is blocked. Idolatry is when a good thing, it's not necessarily a bad thing, becomes more important than God. And you look to it for security and meaning and significance and happiness. And I say all this because I want you to understand that Lot in the book of Genesis is a picture of a heart riddled with idolatry. Because Lot wants Eden without God. And by the way, some of you may be thinking, Rob, you're being way too hard on Lot. But let me also point out that this decision Lot makes to move down to the southeast of the Dead Sea, to the area that was so green and so fertile, proves, that decision proves to be his undoing. So, well, let me show you this. Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. We just read this. The problem was the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Now Lot knew this. Lot knew the reputation of these cities in the plain and how notoriously evil there were. But what does Lot do? Lot chooses to move outside of the promised land and he pitched his tent near Sodom. And what happens when you do that? Well, you are at huge risk of becoming like Sodom. It's like the recovering alcoholic saying, I'm going to spend my afternoons and evenings in the bar. 
It's like the child or the, the student or the adult that dabbles in pornography. It's like teenagers who toy with drugs. And I wonder, what have you pitched your tent next to? Lot once Eden without God. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 19, Lot is no longer living near Sodom. He's living in Sodom. And he barely escapes with his life. And his wife dies in the process of leaving. Man, I love you guys. And I want you to just have a blast this summer, like I said. But I want you to think about the idols of your heart. I frankly can name four or five idols that I battle with every day. Sometimes I'm aware of it, sometimes I'm not even aware of it. But I do know if I pitch my tent near them, it's like pouring gas on the flame. Now what's interesting is in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7, we are told Lot is a believer. Peter calls him righteous. And I believe God has given us the Old Testament story of Lot to show us what happens if we ignore Proverbs chapter 4. If we don't guard our hearts. If we don't understand uh, the, the importance of our, our desires and the things that we value, and if we don't bring them under in an alignment with God's Word and the Lordship of Christ in our lives. And the point of the story of Lot is that if we don't watch our hearts, our idolatry can destroy us. What is an evil heart? What was Lot's heart? It was trying to find the Garden of Eden in creation rather than the Creator. Now let me go on. Let's move from Lot, which is a negative example, to Abraham here in chapter 13, which is a positive example. Actually, there's two examples that merge uh, from Abraham's light here, life here that I want you to see. And the first is this. We're going back to the beginning of chapter 13, where we read from the Negev, he went, Abraham went from place to place until he came to Bethel, until he came to the north, to the place between uh, these two villages where his tent had been earlier, and this is the key, and where he had first built an altar. I said that's in uh, chapter 12 and verse 8. And there Abraham did this. He called on the name of the Lord. Now what you may not know is the second half of chapter 12 is a narrative of a story of major and public failure and sin in Abraham's life. 
It's a shameful episode in Abraham, this great and godly man's life, where he completely and totally blows it, and he does so publicly. What did he do? Well, he lied. But he just didn't lie. He lied to the ruler of Egypt, the Pharaoh himself. And why did he lie? In order to protect himself. That's the only reason we lie. To protect ourselves, to make ourselves look good. And that's exactly what Abraham does. I won't go into the details of the story, but Pharaoh finds out. Pharaoh calls Abraham out, confronts him, and expels him from the land of Egypt. So when we come to the beginning of chapter 13, Abraham is leaving Egypt. But what does he do? He takes a long journey back to the altar he had built earlier. Abraham is on a pilgrimage, and it's a pilgrimage of repentance. Here he goes back to the beginning, and he starts over. And when he calls on the Lord this time, it certainly includes Abraham confessing his sin, God, what I did against you was evil because instead of trusting you, I tried to control the situation in order to protect myself. And Abraham, in confession and sorrow, seeks the forgiveness of God's grace. And that's what this is telling us. And what I want you to see is in spite of major and public failure, sin. Abraham doesn't run away from God, he runs to God. And in brokenness and humility, he confesses. You see, the way, I believe what we're learning here is the way you can know whether you love God with all your heart isn't whether you're perfect. None of us are perfect. But when you stumble and fall, and sometimes when you do it badly, you go into the presence of God, and you're honest with your loving Father. God, here I am again. I've blown it again. And I hate this, and I know you hate it even more, and I confess it to you. And I ask that you would change my heart because I want to repent. I want, want to be uh, different. Hard hearts run from God. Soft hearts run to God. You, you see, it isn't merely your suffering that reveals your heart. It's how you respond to your sin. I'm not talking about the sin of others. I'm talking about your sin and your failure. And I wonder, is there an altar of confession in your life? Is confession a regular part of your spiritual discipline? And I say this because often, if we think our spiritual life is about what we must do, or about being good enough, and looking good enough, then we're not going to confess sin. We may occasionally confess a sin, but we won't generally and regularly and repeatedly confess sin because it's too painful to us because we believe our life is all about ourselves and how we must behave and therefore there's no altar of confession. But it wasn't the case for Abraham. He just totally messed up and yet he runs to the Lord. 
and clings to God's grace, to the throne of grace. And Hebrews says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But if your life isn't about grace, and if it's about you and your performance, then this won't be your experience. I want this to be your experience. Now, there's a second way we see the strength of Abraham's heart, his love for God. And that is with his generosity toward Lot. So this is verse 9 again. Is not the whole, this is Abraham speaking, isn't the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, uh, I'll go to the left. And we got to ask ourselves the question, how in the world could Abraham do this? What was behind this? After all, the promises uh, of the land were given to Abraham. Now others have pointed out that Abraham here has three things and he knows that he can't keep all three. He knows he has to lose one of them. What are the three things he had? He had the Lord, he had Lot, and he had his wealth. And so he had some decisions to make. He could decide to keep Lot, his nephew, and his wealth and deny the Lord and move out of the promised land. And that might have been a good business decision. Or he could have kept the Lord and his wealth and breaking family bonds told Lot to leave, to go back home. But Abraham doesn't do either one of those. Instead, Abraham chooses to hang on to the Lord and to hang on to his nephew Lot and to jeopardize his financial security. Do you see this? And he offers Lot the best of the land. You go to the right and I'll go to the left. It's up to you, buddy. And you know what Abraham is doing here? He's choosing to love God with all his heart, with all his soul, and all his mind, and to love his neighbor as himself. As Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, the first, the greatest, and the second greatest of the two commandments. Abraham knows his wealth isn't his wealth. His wealth is the favor, the promises, the blessings, the love of God, the grace of God, the presence of God. So Abraham was free to surrender the stuff of creation because of his love of the Creator. How do you know you really love God? By how you respond to sin, that's verses 3 and 4. And here, by how generous you are with all that God has given you. This is an incredible illustration of generosity. So I wonder this morning, are you a generous person? Do you tithe? Do you even know what a tithe is? A tithe is an Old Testament concept uh, where the Israelites would give 10% of uh, their income uh, to the Lord. 
and uh, tithing is sort of a baseline and it carries through into the New Testament and, and it changes from tithing in the Old Testament to what we call proportionate giving in the New Testament, but, but the tithe is assumed. Uh, do you love God enough to give 10% of your income to the church, to the cause of Jesus Christ? Or maybe because of debt or things, you're, you're not there, but is that your goal? So for some of you here at Wheaton Bible Church, it's way more than 10%. Uh, are you generous with the poor? Are you alert and uh, aware of the needs around you? Are you responsive? Are, are you, you generous not just with your time and your talent, uh, but your treasures, your finances uh, to support the local cause of Christ here <clears throat> in the suburbs or uh, in the city of Chicago and the global cause of Christ by supporting missionaries? You, you see, like confession, your generosity reveals whether or not you really do love God. And if your faith has legs. So now, uh, let me go on. Uh, how do we overcome the idols so we can avoid becoming like Lot? And how can we live a life of confession? And how can we live a life of generosity? I mean, that's a scary proposal. And I want to submit to you the answer is here in chapter 13, and it lies in the heart of the third person here. And that is Jesus Christ. So look at this last section. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Now, does this remind you of anything? Anything in the Gospels? You see, just as God from the mountains tells Abraham to look and to see the land and promises Abraham to give him the land, so in the same way, 2,000 years later, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, Jesus has taken to a mountain and promised the kingdoms of the world. Only in Matthew chapter 4, it's not God doing the promising, it's Satan. And Satan, in this temptation of Christ, it's called the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4, is promising Jesus what is already his by right. He's promising the kingdoms of the world. Without the cross, without suffering, without uh, Jesus' death. But Jesus refuses Satan. And says in effect, Satan, I haven't come to gain, I have come to lose. And as a matter of fact, to lose just about everything. To lose my glory, to lose my splendor, splendor to lose my authority, and to lose my life. And I'm going to the cross to die there as a substitute, as a sacrificial lamb in the place of people so that the moment they believe, they might find forgiveness, righteousness, and e e eternal life. Now I say this because in Genesis chapter 13, God in his grace and mercy offers Abraham what is not his 
and Abraham accepts. But in Matthew chapter 4, Satan offers Jesus what is already his, and Jesus refuses. Saying, I love them so much, I'm going to die. Do you see Jesus' heart in the contrast? Jesus forfeited the kingdom and chose the cross. That he might rescue you, that he might transform you, that he might ultimately bring you back to Eden. Jesus Christ, in other words, is the greater Abraham who doesn't merely humble himself by letting his nephew choose first, but humbles himself by becoming a man. Jesus is the greater Abraham who doesn't just jeopardize his wealth, but gives up ultimate wealth and becomes poor that we might become rich. Jesus is the greater Abraham who refused Satan's offer and died for you. And so I wonder, do you see the beauty of the Lord of all? As I've said over and over, and I'll say over and over, Jesus Christ isn't merely useful, he's beautiful. Do you see that? Does that grip your heart? Does it melt your heart? Because if so, then you are going to break the cycle of idolatry, and you will live a life of generosity, and you will live a life of confession. But it's the Holy Spirit doing that in you as you look away from yourself to Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, we honor and exalt you for giving us your Son, for pointing us to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, for teaching us about your love, your grace, your glory. And we ask that you would draw us to yourself and that you would make Jesus big. We pray in his precious name. Amen.